Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, Episode 79. Everyone's situation is different. Everyone needs a different type of cow or a different system to use that works in their area. So there's not always a specific answer to the questions that you have. And sometimes the best way to find that out is to test it and figure it out by yourself. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating cost. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's episode, we have Nodia Schoonman from South Africa. He's 18 years old and he lives on the family farm where they raise grass-fed beef and mutton, also some pecans. Very interesting story, finding out what they're doing. In addition to the farm, they also have some destinations or rentals or Airbnbs as another income stream, which is very interesting. I think you'll really enjoy today's conversation. Uh, however, before we talk to him, 10 seconds about my farm. And like this, 10 seconds deteriorates or changes to every week or very frequently. It's the weather. We are getting some rain, and I'm very excited about the rain. We are in a D1 drought, so we're not really in a drought. We're just abnormally dry. We're right on the line. If you go to, if you go north, west of us, it really gets dry. Uh, we're in pretty good shape right here, but but we have slipped in from uh, D1 level, which is abnormally dry, into that, or D0, which is abnormally dry. We've slipped into that D1, which is just the start of a drought. Uh, I watched SunUp that's put out by Oklahoma State University. And on their show last weekend, they were talking about over the last year, we're down about 10 inches of rain. We've actually had it spread out pretty good, but we've been dry lately. So excited about this rain. Uh, my rain gauge was not as full as I was hoping it was or would be, but it's still coming down, so still hopeful there. Weather's cooled down. That's really nice. I hope things are going good where you are. 
let's talk to Nodia. Nodia, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Thank you very much, Kel. Thank you for having me here. Nodia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Okay, so I'm 18 years old. I'm finishing school this year. I've been helping on the farm for the from probably from 2017 a lot. We run this farm as the family, me and my fa- mom, mother and father, and my brother. My brother's two years younger than me. The plan is to go and study at the University of Northwest, and then after I finish that, I'll be coming back to the farm and farming, yeah. With your schooling there, are you finishing up school this year and then you'll go to university next year? Uh, yes. So I do homeschooling. So I do Cambridge. So I'm writing the last exams now in, in a month. I'll be finishing and then I'm going to this university, yeah. Oh, okay. And where are you located? Uh, we live in Potschefstroom in northwest. Uh, we live here in the Fredford Dome World Heritage Site. is where our farm is situated, next to the Vol River. Uh, we on our farm we do accommodation like weekend accommodation that we rent out for like family getaways and things like that, and then also the food production, which is beef, mutton, uh, pecan nuts, and we're starting with vegetables this year. Has your farm always did beef and mutton? Um, so we had beef on the farm, but we in 2015 we had a, a drought. So then we had to sell most of our cattle and we actually restarted the, the cattle farming again in 2017. And then from there we started building our herd again to get it to the point where it is now Again, at a much bigger scale, we only had about seven left in the beginning of 2017. And what kind of cattle did you purchase? Initially, we started with uh, Nguni cattle, which is an indigenous breed, but we had some problems with the carcass quality of the Nguni. So they didn't put on as much fat as we would like for the meat that we sell directly to the consumer. So we started crossing them uh, with Buran, which is also an African breed. And the Buran has a lot of the same attributes that, uh, as the Nguni, the fertility and the parasite resistant, but the resistance, but they also gave us that bit more fat on the carcass, which really helps a lot to give you much better carcass quality and also take your cattle through the winter much stronger. For our listeners that aren't familiar with uh, Nguni or Buran, you talked about them just a little bit. Can you describe them in a little bit more detail, how big they are? They are both medium-framed cattle. I believe the Nguni, more like the the cows are like 350, 350 kilograms. I'm not sure what's the ratio to pounds. And then the Burans are bit heavier, they would be more to 450 size, but they're not, we don't want a big framed animal because big framed animals can't really live in our environment because we have a lot of mountainous area and rocky area. So we need something that can climb into the mountains and get food in some places where it's not accessible to most cattle breeds and also during droughts and, 
and winter they have to maintain their body condition and that's much easier for for bit smaller framed animals and with the um um, buran on there are are they able to finish on grass yes so our cattle live on 100 percent grass we don't give them any supplement grain or anything like that for growth so it is very important for us to finish our cattle on grass only and the buran really brings some good attributes to make that possible for us and what kind of of forage are your cattle grazing? So our farm has mixed forages. We have a range of forages from a bit rocky mountain areas with hard grass and very low carrying capacity. And then we have some places that's more valleys with deeper soil and better grass quality. Our rainfall is about 26 inches a year in a four to six month period in the summer we get most of our rain yeah it's it's i think it's more dry than most of your areas there yeah we and it's a lot hotter so we need animals that can adapt to that so you have a really uh a rainy period and then dry winter and the rest is pretty dry what kind of challenges you guys have to deal with we have to have a very good plan of what we're gonna, how we're going to graze during winter because we don't do any winter feeding or bale grazing or anything like that. You really have to have a set plan in the beginning of winter of where you're going to graze and how you're going to get through the farm and still have grass left because sometimes the, the rain can be unpredictable. So you can have rain coming two months late and then you still have to have extra grazing left for for in case that happens so we have a system of grazing called high high density grazing where we move our cattle at the best times eight times a day sometimes in like in winter we'll maybe move them twice a day or once every two days or so but that really helps to to utilize your grass as effectively as possible and not uh, waste any grass, and it also really improves the quality of your if your of your grasslands. That sounds like quite a bit of work to move them that much a day. Yes, so we have one which we call the herder, but it's not really a herder. It's the guy who moves the the electrical, the temporary electric fences that we have. So he's with the cattle the whole day. And they, we have two guys rotating. So one week they work there and then the other week they, they change. So then the other guy works there. So if it's far from our main farm where we live, they sometimes even sleep in a tent closer to the cattle so that they can spend enough time there to move them uh, as much as possible and keep an eye on the cattle. And that also really helps with disease prevention because sometimes if you... If there's a sick cow, they see it within the first day or two and they see that cow and you can treat it. And same with the calves or anything that can be a risk to the cattle is really eliminated by that herder being with the cattle every day. And you said that just a while ago that you're using an electric fence to create your paddocks for each move? Yes. So we have temporary electric wires 
uh, in summer we use one strand uh, of wire and the sheep is still kind of a problem for us uh, or we, we d don't manage them as effectively as we want to because they move with our herd of cattle uh, they normally walk in front so they kind of graze selectively but the cattle come after them and clean it uh, in winter we use two two strands of electric wire just to keep the cattle in when the soil is dry so you're basically you're moving your cattle and sheep together at least fairly close together yes so when we are more in uh, open pastures where there's not a lot of trees and bushy areas uh, we like to keep the sheep in front of the cattle uh, so that they get enough nutrition because after the cattle pass uh, there's really not a lot of forage left but when we're in an area where it's a little more like in on the hangs of the mountains or even areas with more bush then they will come behind the cattle because they can get into that branches and places where the cattle can't reach. And then they'll eat in there and graze more of the leaves and things like that. So, so then they'll graze after the cattle, but they normally, yeah, they, they, they graze together. So, so the sheep also has a temporary corral where they sleep at night, which get moved every once or every second night which really helps for the parasites. So they, yeah, they move together permanently. And what kind of sheep do you have? So the breed that we use is meat called a meat master. Uh, it originally started as a breed between the Dorper and Damara. So the Damara which was a really hardy breed that could withstand very harsh, temp harsh temperatures and really difficult conditions. But they had a bit of a problem on the carcass quality, similar to the Ngunis that we have. And then they crossed them with a Dorper, which wasn't as hardy as a, as a Damara. But they, they had very good carcass quality. And then they just started selecting for the attributes that they wanted. So they, the Meatmaster is also a very hardy, very fertile. Now, I'm assuming the Meatmaster is a hair breed, since Dorper is. Yeah, the meat master is a breed. I think uh, it makes it a bit easier. We really want a system that's not very high maintenance, that's a low impact, easy system to use. And that's why we want these breeds that that's not a lot of work and needs a lot of attention and can actually kind of survive on their own with only the help of us with the grazing management. Very good. Now, one thing with your sheep and and cattle as i think about south africa i'm not sure where all the the large predators live and your wildlife there and uh, does that cause some some management challenges for you we in south africa we don't really have like most people from out of south africa believe lions walking around everywhere we do in fact have leopards that will occasionally move around here but they're not really a big problem. Every now and then, every few years, we'll lose a few calves to them and then we'll realize that the leopard has passed again or we'll see warthogs that have been caught and eaten. So then we know. But the real predators that we're dealing with, with is more smaller like jackals and smaller cat breeds that can, that's more dangerous to the sheep. So we have a really good fence for the sheep where they sleep at night. 
which is strong enough to keep predators out. And then to, to uh, keep the calf safe, we really select for good mothers in our cattle. Our cattle also have horns. We don't remove their horns, so that helps to keep predators away. With your, your sheep, you talk about pinning them up at night. You also have your herdsman out there that's moving your cattle and sheep multiple times a day. In the U.S., yeah, U.S., other countries too, but we use livestock guardian dogs. Do you all use anything like that to help protect your sheep, or is it mainly just the herder and the nightly pens? Yeah, so we have considered using guardian dogs. We've looked into it, but at the moment, we're not really losing a lot of lambs and calves due to predators. So we feel like maybe in the future that would be something that we could consider. But at the moment, it's not really a problem for us. So it's just going to make the management harder to keep a guardian with them. And the other thing is also we don't know because it's not a very, not a lot of people use livestock guardians here. We really don't know how it would fit into our system and how it would work. But, but that's probably something to consider in the future. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have to figure out what works for your area. And if it's working good what you're doing, then by all means continue. Do you have your cattle and sheep, lamb and calf at the same time? And what time of year is that? Uh, they calf in the beginning of summer or in oh, okay. beginning of December. So the reason why we decided on that first thing is that if you look at the antelope, around in our area they all lamb and calf at that time so automatically we we realized that that's more the natural time for them to lamb and then we we found out or some people told us and we did some we found out a little bit about what what other people say and they said that when you have a high body condition on your cattle when they calf the chances of them getting pregnant is again is much higher, and that we've really so seen that that we are getting a higher pregnancy when we let them calf on green grass, so that their condition is better. And then with the sheep, we're still kind of finding the breeding season for the sheep. Currently, we let them lamb in late summer, so then the condition of the the ewes are still high. But then you don't get that parasite infestation on the lambs because that can really set the lamb back and lambs can get much weaker if they get attacked by, by parasites. So that's been working very good for us, uh, letting them lamb in the end of summer and going into winter. Then we also don't wean our lambs because we're not like the conventional system on an eight-month lambing period. So basically let, putting the rams in every eight months on a yearly system so they the use that wean their lambs by themselves and then they'll be ready to get mated again in uh, the end of the next year and at what age are you all um, slaughtering or processing your lambs so the lambs uh, we're currently proce processing them between one and one and a half years so then oh, okay. we can get the the grading that we want in south africa they uh, work on the A2, which is the best. A is the age of the lamb, which is the youngest. And two is the amount of fat. So A2 is the perfect lamb that you can get. 
but in the future we'd like to with improving our genetics move to more between eight and eight months and a year so probably about 10 months would be the, the ideal time to slaughter them but we haven't uh, been able to do that just yet oh yeah and with your cattle at what age are you processing them so we process our cattle at about three years of age the thing with the oxen is we they keep growing so the longer you can keep your oxen the better but uh, so we'll probably in the beginning when we do pregnancy tests on our cattle we'll start by slaughtering cows that didn't get pregnant and then as soon as they we've slaughtered off the cow we'll move off over to the three-year-old oxen which will then be slaughtered in the next few months normally about between three and four years you can slaughter them at two and a half years if you really need to so let's say for example that it was a drought or something and we needed to get rid of some of the cattle we can slaughter them early as well they still have grade two grading so they are fat enough but they just have a smaller carcass which is a bit lower profit and do you all is the plan to to sell direct to the consumer yes so currently we're processing one cow every second week we process our meat by a processor that we know and then we sell the meat directly to the consumer so we don't have any pork into in our sausages in uh, what we call buravors here in south africa we don't have any so any pork in there so it's 100 percent beef so we we can assure our customers that it's a clean product that they're buying and we're also mixing the herbs that we use in our and in our buravors ourselves so that's that you're not getting that processed and gmo things that you would buy in in the shop and when you direct the market, direct market your beef and mutton, are you located near a big city or do you do farmer's markets? Do you all have farmer's markets or is it more just the consumer comes to the farm? No. So our farm is about 30 kilometers out of our town, which is Potjefstroom. Potjefstroom is quite a big town. We still call it a town. I don't know if it classifies as a city yet. Um, but yeah, in, in Poch, we also have the University of Northwest. So it's quite a, a big town. We On Saturday mornings, we go to a, I think it's like a farmer's market, basically, that we sell our meat. So we our grass-fed meat mostly gets marketed from there, but then we also market it via WhatsApp, and then people just picks it up from a, a place in town with, where we yeah, deliver it from. Very good. Yes. Now, you all started doing this about, I guess, about five years ago. You all bought some cattle. What have been some challenges that you you maybe didn't anticipate? I think one of the biggest challenges have been getting getting into the mating season. That's really difficult with the cows to get them all lined up in the same season. Sometimes you lose one year from a cow if you want to move them to the right mating season so that's been one of the big challenges and we've only now 100 percent fallen into that that mating season but i think probably the other thing is pregnancy rate i've moved now to a much more effective leak that we use a mineral supplement that we mix ourselves that i've really pushed our pregnancy off from 60 something percent to to the high 80s so that that's 
that made a huge difference in our pregnancy rates. And at the end of the day, that's really where where the profit comes from is the pre- pregnancy rate. Yes, that makes a big difference when you're able to increase that pregnancy rate. Now, Nodia, just about the general cattle production in South Africa. I've never been there. Can you just tell us a little bit about how beef cattle are raised in South Africa? Is it something we'd be familiar with or not? So the normal system that's used by farmers is there's probably farmers that do the cow-calf operation and they just supply calves to the feedlot farmers. So oh, the yeah. feedlots will normally buy that from the from the farmers, the calves, and then they'll raise them and then probably sell it again to the next line in the chain that sells it to the consumer. So it's a really long line from farmer to the consumer. Uh, we're trying to get that line shorter. And the, the thing is also with the breeds that's normally used uh, here in South Africa is not the most grass-effective breeds. So we, we strive to get an effective grass converter uh, into meat. But these cat- most cattle are bred for high feedlot conversion. So to get as much growth from the feed that they take. And that's completely a different cow than the one we're trying to breed. And what breeds do you typically see? So we have a lot of the, the most, probably one of the most popular breeds in South Africa is the Bonsmara. I don't know if you know the Bonsmara. So that's, as far as I know, it's across, it has some short horn in Hereford and then also an African breed, the Afrikaner. So that's probably the most popular. And then you have Hereford, Angus, things like that but the this grass more grass type of cattle is really the demand for them is really increasing for things like Buran and Guni that's a much more constant form of income and a lot a much lower risk for for the farmer well that was leading into my my next question are you seeing grass-fed products and regenerative practices on the increase Yes, and yeah, yes and no. So you always have that one part of the market who just wants the cheapest product. They want, they're always looking for the prices and they, they don't really care about the quality of the product. And then the other side, we really have an increasing market of people who's really doing a lot for their health. So they, when they see us and they see we have 100% grass-fed beef and mutton, they are very excited and glad that they can finally get this product because it's really not very popular. We're probably the only per- people in our town doing it. And yeah, it's, you don't see a lot of farmers that doing, that's doing this 100% grass-fed because it's a much longer process. It's a lot, much longer time before you turn that cash around because, like I said, it takes three years and, and you have to work on your cow genetics, on your herd genetics. So it's probably we now after five years only first getting the best the the first calves that we really want and we're not getting the amount that we want yet we'd soon like to slaughter five a week but it really takes a long time to get into that system and i think that's what a lot of farmers are scared of and they don't want to change their system into that's this much longer system yeah slower system oh yes very good 
Now, you mentioned earlier you also have pecan trees. Yeah, pecan trees. We, our pecan trees are not into, in production yet. So we have about, uh, what's it, 17 acres, I think, of pecan trees or 15 to 17 acres. But they're still small, so they are not in, in production yet. We planted the last lines this year. So they will, I, as far as I know, take between five and seven years before they will get into production. But yeah, then we'll, we'll start marketing from there as well. So we're trying to diversify our, our farm as much as possible that lowers risk, but we don't want to do it all at once. So it's a slow process. If you're going to focus on too many things, you're not going to do it properly. It does take time. You're right. With those uh, pecanut trees, are you all grazing that area right now? Or is it something for in the future when they get more mature? Do you plan to graze it? Yes. So we do, we do graze the, the pecanut field from time to time. So what we try to do is with the high density grazing, we're, not try, we're trying not to graze a place more than two times a year. So once or twice a year. So we'll probably come in uh, late winter or so and clean that area so that we can uh, have an open area to work with to replace their trees and to plant new lines of trees. So we do graze that and we'll just put a temporary electric fence around each tree just to protect them that while they're still small. But we also have electric yeah, yeah. fence around the, the pecanuts so just to protect them from, from monkeys that can eat the nuts later, but also now against porcupines and things, because the, especially now in late winter, we are moving into summer now. The porcupines don't have a lot of food in the, in the wild, so then they'll come in and they'll eat the trees. And the first year that we planted pecanus trees, we lost all the trees that we planted. I think we planted about 500 and they ate all 500 trees. Oh, wow. Porcupines. I, I couldn't have told you they would come in and do that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. We also, we didn't expect that. It was really a shock the first year before we had a fence to see all the trees being eaten. And every morning you get there and then there's, again, a few trees, 10 or 20 trees eaten. And then before the next year, we lost all of them. So then we decided the next year we're going to put a, uh, a guard there during the night just to protect them while we, while we were putting on the electric fence. So the, temp, the permanent electric fence around there. And since then, we haven't had a lot of problems with the porcupines coming in and eating the trees. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, in addition to your, the bee, mutton, pecanut trees, you all do accommodations. Tell us a little bit about that, just so we have an idea of what you're doing there. Okay, so our farm, like I said, is situated next to the Vala River. So uh, it's also in, in the Freer for Dome World Heritage site. So it's kind of a tourist destination as well. So we have a few houses that we, that we rent out, uh, ranging from a two-sleeper to a 14-sleeper. That's normally used over the weekends sometimes during yeah. the week as well and over school holidays we are really fully booked and then yeah it's just a nice getaway for friends and family to f especially poch and we're not too far from Joburg as well so we get a lot of guests from there so that's a great way to to increase 
diversity on your farm and increase the income. Has that presented any challenges to your grazing operation? Not specifically to the grazing operation. It does give us some challenging with challenges with the the workforce sometimes because sometimes there's things that needs to be done at the cattle or I mean at the at the livestock and then there's also something that needs to be done before the weekend at the houses cutting or mowing the lawns and things like that. That's oh, sometimes yeah. a challenge and so to to use the workforce effectively is sometimes difficult but but it didn't really to the grazing system it doesn't uh, make it hard actually the grazing system helps with the houses because all our houses have roofs so like grass on the roofs and that's really a fire risk so in in the beginning of winter we'll graze an area all around the the houses in order to just save them from felt fires because that's really a big risk to in our areas the the fires that come in late winter and because we have a mountainous area it's very hard to 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 kill that fire so if you have a fire that it can run for kilometers oh yes that's a great use of your resources to negate or negate a potential risk there yeah so in in the beginning of winter we'll first start by by grazing the the highest risk areas around the houses and then also around our farm we graze we can call it a fire barrier basically a 30 meter barrier around the farms because we take off all the grass we 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 use 100 percent of the grass uh, by the cattle so then that strip really helps and then we'll also cut the farming the farms into blocks and so then when it burns you can kind of manage that blocks so that it doesn't spread throughout the all the farms Oh, yeah. Sounds like an excellent plan there. So do you typically see wildfires each year close to your farm? Or how big a risk is it? Yes. So this year we've been lucky. So far, the last fire was about 10 kilometers away from our farm. That they just stopped today. But this year we've been lucky. Nothing too close to ours. The last really big fire that we had was in 2018, where it burned down thousands of hectares in our area. And then that was just, it was a bad wind and the the fire just ran too fast to control. Um, but since then, a few small fires here and there, but but the, the fire barriers really helped a lot uh, since we've been doing that. So we feel safer when there's a fire in our area. Not to say it can't reach us, but it's not that right. much stress when there's a fire. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. You brought up a few things. You're working on your genetics with your animals to get them to be, you know, more of what you're wanting to market and get that quality product. You know, I've got the pecanut trees planted for future and you've got the accommodations so you have a lot of things going on. As you look towards the future and going to university and your brother getting older, what's some of those plans for the future for the farm? Yeah, so we're kind of in a difficult place now. We have a lot of things that's almost ready. Yes. So probably by the time I'll be back, these things will be, uh, be in motion. But I'd really like to, to expand the, 
the beef herd a lot and the mutton and all of this small things that we've started and get it into uh, a proper weekly slaughter that, so that we have our own slaughterhouse on the farm and process, process our oh, own yeah. meat and things like that. And just we'd like to just get the scale of what we do now much bigger. So we're not, not necessarily planning for maybe we'll do something like pastured pork and tried eggs and things of like that. Maybe that will be something that we can consider in the future. But for now, it's just to expand what we that what we've been building up to now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Nodia, let's take a little bit of a shift and, and go into our overgrazing section where we eat. Whoa. I don't even know what I'm saying. Where we talk about something in a little bit more detail. And one thing talking about is managing your ecosystem and improving it. And you're using grazing to do that. So. We, before we did high density grazing, before 2017, we really started realizing there was something wrong with the management. We saw erosion, we saw patches of grass dying, bush encroachment, killing all of the grass. We, the wildlife started disappearing and we, we knew something were wrong. And we heard about this new system mimicking uh, big herds of antelope. And we started applying this and just the, the guy or the, the, as we get, got to know it in the beginning is removing all of the grass, like a big herd of antelope would come and really trampling some of that grass. And it made a lot of sense because now you have a barrier there protecting the swell cap, uh, keeping moisture in, keeping the temperature down. And we've seen an explosion of wildlife, of birds coming back, like I said, warthogs, even though the leopard comes now and then, or the leopards, and catches a calf or two, that's still a sign that, that the wildlife is, is uh, restoring. We have kudus and we have small antelope that's around here, and it's just amazing to see how the grass have improved. You see places where we have bear, where we had bare areas in before is lush grass and places where we had bushes taking over there's now still trees and you're getting more of the savanna effect with trees but grass growing under the trees and it's it's amazing to see how how that's everything's coming together just by doing a small thing like changing the grazing management and we also trying to keep we we're not using any poisons for any trees or we're not spraying poison or even on our cattle we're doing since 2018 we haven't done any parasite treatment because our environment is so healthy and the system that we use just the parasites can't handle handle it so we haven't had any tick problems things like that just the ecosystem you can see the ecosystem getting better again and that's that's amazing to see how everything fits together as soon as, as everything's healthy. How soon after you all started with your high-density grazing did you start noticing an increase in the wildlife diversity? So the wildlife diversity, from the time when we started it, we started to taking off some of the inside fences on the farm and things like that. So, so the animals automatically had more 
roaming space or that the, oh, it was yeah. easier for them to roam around. So the, it really takes a long time and I think we're going to see much more happen. But since the time we started, it, it was just, we saw it building up. And probably now, this year and last year, we have seen the most, uh, the biggest difference in, in the number of, of wildlife that there is. But I think we don't know what it is yet. And the other problem is that now when we don't have predators or a lot of big predators, we have to find out where is that balance and where, where we'll have to start hunting without hunting too much, but keeping that balance. So that's something that we'll still need to figure out. And did you notice when you start your high-density grazing on the vegetation there? How quick was the adjustment to your vegetation? So within the first year, we, we've seen a difference. I, I'd say the biggest difference was after three years, three grazings basically. Then we saw an explosion of different grass species that we haven't seen before and in areas where there wasn't a lot of grass. But, but within the first year, you can, could already see that green spots where, where you had manure spread because now your manure is also spreading much more evenly than before when you had a let's say a 400 acre camp and let the cattle graze the whole area you only have manure at the water at the water and the lake but now they spread it more evenly so you the first year we did it we saw this we didn't realize what it was we saw this three green spots and we didn't know what it was and the next year we realized oh it's the manure and we saw dung beetles a lot of dung beetles returning and it looked almost like moles, some of the, the dung beetles, because they, they can dig up to a 1.2 meter uh, hole. So, so within the first year, we have seen a difference. But I'd say three years was the, was the biggest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And with your high-density grazing, one thing you've talked about is those multiple moves during the day. Did you all start immediately when you all got your cows in 2018 with those numerous moves during the day or did you work up towards those moves yeah so in the beginning like i said we only had seven oxen that was still left of the previous herd that we have had so we we moved we put gave them a small strip and we moved them about twice a day or three times a day moving them only one meter at a time so we we try to do it that regularly from the beginning but i'd say we do graze more intensely now that the herd is bigger. We've bought in some cows over the years and the, the progeny has also grew up to give their own calves. So, yeah, I'd say it's more effective now, but, but the amount of moves pretty much stayed the same from the time when we started. Okay, very good. Well, Nodia, it is time for our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? So I, I don't know if I would be able to, to name a specific one, but I have listened to the podcasts that you have on Spotify. So it's really easy to, uh, wherever you are, wherever you are going, whenever you can put that on and listen, listen to the, the podcast that you have. And I'm really glad that you're starting in Africa and South Africa also as now because that's really interesting to learn from farmers in our area as well so i'm very excited for that i i agree We're, we are working to get more 
international guest on here. So hopefully we can grow that presence and get and just give voice to more voices mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Now, Dia, what is your favorite tool for your farm? That's a difficult one. The one thing that we wouldn't be able to or yeah, to live without is probably the electric fences. We don't have a lot of gadgets and things that we use. We try to keep electronics and things like that in the field now as minimum as possible. So we like, for example, we have an ox wagon with two oxen that helps moving the electric fences and buckets and things like that. And that's the kind of things. And the bicycle is probably the most high tech thing that we use other than the electric fences. So in the field, we try to keep it low maintenance, but I think the, without the electric fences, our, it would be much difficult, much more difficult to do this system. Uh, there is some people in South Africa who, who uses herding only, but in our area, I don't know if herding would be effective. Yeah, electric fence has done wonders for frequent moves. For our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? I'd say probably the thing that I've learned is that there's not always an answer to the question that you're asking. Sometimes I want to start something and I try to Google as much, look on YouTube, look through books, everything, and then I can't get the answer. And it's not because there isn't an answer, it's because no one has tried it yet. And sometimes the best way to learn is just to try something on your farm and and see because everyone's everyone's situation is different. Everyone everyone needs a different type of cow maybe or a different system to use that works in their area. So there's not always a specific answer to the questions that you have. And sometimes the best way to find that out is to test it and figure it out by yourself. Yeah, great advice. Great advice. Nodia, lastly, where can others find out more about you? I have an Instagram called Life in a Dome. You can see there, there sometimes I put some things about the farm and how we graze. You'll get some information there. Then we also have a website, Skumanshof or www.skumanshof.co.za. That's our website. We don't have as much information about the, the grazing and the, the farm more so. That's more the accommodation, but you can see some of our things there. And then, yeah, we also have a, a Skumanshof grass-fed Instagram. That's the meat side and mostly Skumanshof on Facebook. So you can check all that social media platforms and then, yeah, you can message us or you'll get our number on that, that platforms if you want to get in contact with us. Very good, Nodia. Appreciate you coming on and sharing. And we'll have those links in our show notes. And I encourage you to go look at um, the Instagram accounts because they've got pictures of cattle and terrain especially for someone from Oklahoma to see what it looks like in South Africa is, is just a treat in itself. Now, Dia, thank you for coming on and sharing with us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Cal. Uh, thank you for let, giving me the time to tell you about what we're doing here and what we're achieving and the, 
the outgrade the nature is working for us. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.